Welcome to Fact and Science Fiction. I'm your host, Carly, and this episode is a special interview episode with David Siegel Bernstein, author of Blockbuster Science. We talk about his book, his day job, and his own science fiction stories, and a bunch of other stuff. Without further ado, here's the interview. Hello, I'm David Siegel Bernstein. I am a writer and a forensic data scientist. Wow, cool. That was going to be my one of my questions. <laughs> uh, one of the reasons I wanted you on the show, while I think forensic data science is super interesting, is that I'm a big fan of your book, uh, Blockbuster Science. Um, I've used it as a uh, a resource for a few episodes of my show now. Um, so thank you. Been a lifesaver, really. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was actually um, my friend worked at Barnes and Noble and I was visiting her one day and I was just kind of browsing while she was busy and it just kind of called out to me uh, on like one of their displays. And I was like, this is awesome because I had been planning this podcast but hadn't really started it and I was like this is perfect exactly what I was looking for so so yeah um I wanted to talk to you about how uh how you came um up with the idea for this book what was the the research process like and and how that was it if I remember correctly it began the idea began around 2010 I was writing a monthly article called Science for Fiction for a magazine called Abandoned Towers Magazine. It was an online magazine that no longer exists, unlucky for me. And what, what the, the point of the articles were is that I would try to incorpor- tell writers how to use science in their science fiction stories, like the best way to incorporate it, what's real, what's fake. And it'd have different topics like time travel, um, black holes, all the stuff that's in blockbuster science is the same stuff I did in my article. So that's where I got the idea or or the idea for the book. The original idea was, is I thought it'd be a fun way to explore the world of science through the use uh, as of its use in science and science fiction. And that's how the whole article began. And when the magazine went under, I started to get the idea, well, why don't I start compiling these articles into a book? And that made for about, 30, 40 pages. So I had to come up with a lot more. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of research and I had a really good time putting it together. Yeah. Um, what were, if you had to choose, what are your, your, what's the kind of area you most like to research? Well, the, the easiest for me to research, well, I guess there's a lot of easy ones, but the easiest would be the physics uh, sections because I, uh, when I was in college, Originally, I started off as a physics major, oh. so I really enjoyed the um, writing the sections on space and time, that and quantum mechanics, black holes, and all that. But researching other chapters, I was a little not as fluent in would be the consciousness and reality section. I had a lot of I had a lot of good time writing that one. The idea of what what consciousness is, what does it mean to be real, and all that stuff. That that was very enjoyable for me. Yeah, that was um, a, a really good chapter. And I, I read that chapter a lot for 
my episode on, well, I think it was a little bit of my artificial intelligence, but also like the extraterrestrial intelligence, basically what is intelligence? Like what exactly are we looking for? I like when when science and philosophy kind of meet. And I think physics has a lot of that that too, like what is real and the same same laws for one thing apply to everything, at least some of them do. So yeah, I could totally see um, how that topic would be super interesting to learn about. Yeah, I did enjoy it. The the um, intelligence one, as you said, artificial intelligence, alien intelligence, and human biological intelligence. It was a lot of fun to to research, and the idea of the brain being a um, um, like running simulations of what's not necessarily really there, it really fascinated me. So when you're looking at something and you see a chair or you see something and it's red or it's blue or it's brown, that's not reality. That's the reality of the of your brain because those are just light waves and your brain is interpreting these light waves and making them into those colors so that you and I can share this reality. But that's not the reality of the universe necessarily. And aliens that don't have the photoreceptors in the eyes aren't going to see these colors. It's a whole different reality for them. And, and, that, and I really found that very, very interesting. My favorite science fiction that has a theme of, of intelligence, um, I think really play with like challenging our assumptions of, of what like our reality is and what we might find, um, what we might discover out there is very counter to what we might believe about ourselves. So true, true, true. I agree. I, I agree. I did enjoy um, speaking of consciousness and all that. I did enjoy with the uh, say uh, Westworld and how they did the whole bicameral thinking and all mm-hmm. that, which which you had to do on what is consciousness and what is it to be cognitive. That I, I did enjoy that a lot. Yeah, I looked into their. Um, yeah, the theory that they that they talk about was just realizing that the voice in your head was not God, but was yourself, um, and that was being a part of yeah. of consciousness. And absolutely, I think it was. Um, now I'm going to use my memory a little bit. I think it was Julian James. It's in my book. Came up with it in the '70s. Not really accepted completely among other scientists, but as far as artificial intelligence goes, I really like the idea. And it had to do with, a, I guess, a two-chambered mind that humans only get, became conscious, I think he said, 3,000 years ago. And everything before that was just reactions. You were just, you saw an animal, you ran, you were hungry, you ate, you procreated as necessary. All that were just reflexes. And then if anything was novel, maybe use a fire, lightning strike, you saw a fire, you'd hear a voice in your head. The voice would say run or pain or whatever the voice said. And you didn't believe that voice was yours, which is just how it was in, in Westworld. You, you, you'd hear a voice in your head and it would tell you stuff. And it isn't until many years later or generations later where that voice you realize is your own. And you switch to using the word I. And you no longer believe in an outside agency of a god or a chieftain. That it's you have your own agency. And I thought the theory was really interesting when I was researching it. And then when I obviously watched Westworld, I loved it. I mean, loved, loved it. And it was a good application of it in the um, artificial, in using it for artificial intelligence. 
Um, and I don't have it in front of me, but I think I'm going to say chapter 13. Yeah, you got it. Huh. Yes, victory. <laughs> so I remember these chapters. I mean, it's easy to remember one and two because one is all the cool uh, space travel and time travel. Right. And then the quantum mechanics. And the last chapter is easy to remember, too, because it really is the end of everything. I like that you have a list of recommendations for for books, for movies, for music. Yeah. The, the funny thing is, though, is that for the music list, I have it on Spotify. It's called Blockbuster Science. And I put all those songs in and a few extra. Yeah. I thought they're all reasonably could be related to a chapter. Oh, cool. I'll look that up. And the movies in there, I, I think most of the movies I reference in the book. I've been watching a lot more of, um, of sci-fi movies. I thought, like, there are so many I hadn't seen that really, like, just permeated pop culture in such a way. And then I don't even realize that I haven't even seen them. That's what's so cool about science fiction sometimes. Yeah, and there's so many good science fiction television shows right now that I can't keep up with. Yeah. Them. I, I've been really looking forward to watching The Passage. And I, I, I don't know if you've seen it, but I've been looking forward to that one. So I'm going to try to catch up on that. Yeah, that one, like, I uh, used to work at a bookstore, and it was, uh, that book just hit the stands while I was there, and it looked really interesting, but I hadn't read it. Um, but yeah, I've been pl- uh, shown a lot of the ads on social media. <laughs> you haven't seen the answer. I guess, I guess the book was a trilogy. Mm-hmm. I think there was three of them. Yeah. I want to go back to what you said earlier about how uh, your the articles that you wrote were for um, sci-fi creators to to use science in um, in cool ways in their work. And I know that in the back of your book it says that you wrote uh, sci-fi stories. And so I was just wondering, um, what do you think uh, like scientists and sci-fi creators have in common? And if you could possibly sum up how important you think it is for sci-fi writers to use science, like real science in their work. Oh, it's, it's very important. Um, you, I think you asked like, how does science and science fiction sort of connect? And it really is a big overlap. Science fiction is always driven by fear and hope. Those are the big tropes in it. And science is driven by necessity and curiosity. And if you were to draw a Venn diagram, the overlap of that is huge. And that's where all the stories come from. You know, there's there's so much. Um, and, and I may have put it in the book that words like robot actually come from um, science fiction or the word android. All these, all these things come from science fiction or people when they were young were hooked on science fiction, grew up to be scientists. The overlap is just huge on that. And for and for including science and science fiction, as a author, I always believe in minimizing the number of lies you tell in the story, because fiction is basically telling lies. It's not telling, you know, otherwise it'd be nonfiction. You're, you're, you're telling a lie, and a lot of times the reader's going to know that this isn't really true. But if you minimize it as little as possible with truth around it. When the light comes, it's very smooth. So I guess maybe in in a show like Star Trek, you don't really you sort of accept anti gravity on the ship. 
because everything they all, everything else they keep as close as they can to actual true science, you know, with the techno babble and everything. They try to keep it as close that when something isn't true, you don't really notice it as a reader or as a viewer of it. So, and that's what I would encourage in those articles. So if I was doing time travel or space, I would definitely include um, something like time dilation. As you go faster, you, you move slower through time. I would try to include that in the story. Include, include and encourage writers to use it. Or if you're going to have a black hole in the story, you know, stray away from that Disney movie and go for more what a black hole really is. Things like that. And then, and then you can build your fiction around the characters, which is more fun. And um, since you're since you're a more of a, a physics guy than like a, a like biology guy, do you tend to use more physics in um, your work and your sci-fi work? Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm writing a couple of short stories right now, and they're definitely more with say, um, you know, there might be more AI in it or more. Adventures in space or satellites, more concrete science than the biological ones with viruses. You know, I'm not opposed to, you know, including a zombie every now and then due to uh, a, a biological outbreak. But for those, I have to do a little bit more research. And when it comes to things like that, I would call my friend. I have a Jonathan Mayberry, who's another writer. That, 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 that's his stuff that I would maybe call him up and say, you know, give me some tips, give me a suggestion for, for that stuff. He did the blurb on your book. I noticed that. Yeah. I met him at like a, a convention uh, so I could get some book signs for, for a friend. He's real nice. Oh, he's very nice. Yeah. He, and, he, and he's a big promoter of other writers. And um, yes, he's a very good guy. He, he used to live out here. He used to live in Philadelphia before he moved out to California. Nice. So are there, there are topics in space that you're more interested than others, like any topics that you kind of watch for in the news, like the Mars Rover or anything like that? Oh, definitely. I mean, oh, yeah, the Mars 2020 projects, both by Elon Musk and NASA and ESA, the whole Chinese program right now with the Chang'e 4, you know, landing on the dark side of the moon. And I believe... And I might be mispronouncing. I say Chang'e. Sometimes I hear it a little differently. But the Chang'e 5, which is coming up next, is going to actually bring samples from the dark side of the moon back to Earth, which is very exciting. Yeah, we haven't had many samples of the moon in a long time. Yeah, and there's a lot of water, apparently, because you get um, hydrogen and you have oxygen. That's all you need for water. Yeah. Wow, I didn't think about that. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're probably going to dominate in that for a while. And then India's got, and I can never say these names of these very well, but the Chandrayaan uh, project where they, they're sending a rover and orbit orbiter to Mars. Um, there's just a lot going on, which mm-hmm. is all very exciting. Yeah, it is. Um, for a while there, I was just tuned into NASA Live on YouTube. For, it seemed like every week or so they had something cool uh, going on. Oh, well, yeah, NASA's just, I mean, huge with Mars right now. And mm-hmm. they're working on, you know, the new Atlas V rocket, and there's just a, a lot going on. And then Elon Musk, he's got his BFR rocket all set to go to Mars. There, there's a, 
Yeah, it's actually a pretty exciting time because we're including not just the U.S., we're including the whole world and right. race projects. And this is just a very actually exciting time. Yeah, a lot of collaboration. Yeah, I like that. Collaboration is actually very good. To kind of switch gears to to your, your other job in um, data science, can you talk a little bit about what you do? Um, well, my, my job title is just a fancy term for saying that I look at data and I study patterns in data to understand patterns in human behavior. That's what I do. I specialize looking for discrimination mostly. Sometimes it could be a banking. It could be with police departments. It could be a job. It could be a government at really any level just to see what's going on. So I do mathematical modeling of what a perfect environment would be with, say, everybody gets promoted the same, uh, everybody gets raises the same, and then I look at what it, what I see in reality, and then I take the differences, and, you know, it, and it gives me a lot of information. So I, I do uh, computer programming for that, statistical programming. And, you know, it could be a, like a police department, do certain races get disciplined more than others? Or if you do get disciplined, are you more likely to have a higher penalty than other races? Do, let's say, women get promoted at the same rate at a company? All that sort of stuff. So I, I look at human patterns in data. That's pretty much what I do. And it's actually a lot of fun. That's awesome. Have you discovered, like, any overarching patterns in those fields? Like, do people hire your company as, like, consultants or? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we work for um, uh, yeah anybody that hires us really. It's uh, but we're new. I mean, we we don't, which is actually very interesting because you have to be very careful with data. You can't lie or data mine, cheat, change data. You know that might happen, but you, you don't want to ever see that happen. So if a company hires us, or if the government hires us, or if a local agency hires us, we just present what we see, and then leave it there then you know whatever decisions have to be made after that is on them or on the person that's or the group that's being um adversely impacted it might be on them so it, it could be even testing so if you're taking a test for a job um, a government job or a teaching job is that test fair is it fair to everybody based on your ethnic background we would look at things like that and then we would advise accordingly. Right. Yeah. Um, the company I work for started doing these kinds of, uh, seems like a, a personality screening um, for, for job candidates and um, kind of finding the profile that they think matches the best in this job, in that job. And then, um, testing the candidates to see if they match. And um, probably it's it's my kind of cynicism or, or just kind of suspicion, but I do uh, do like to question those things um, all in the name of like efficiency, uh, just exactly what's what is being tested and yeah, if it's fair. So oh, oh, definitely. I, I agree with you. You should be a cynical. The, uh, the, a, a very simple fix in an example would be, say, orchestras. So years ago, first violins used to be predominantly male. 
because it would be thought that males could play better or whatever the reason was. You know, I'm not going to say why. But eventually what happened was is someone came up with an idea. Hey, why don't we have blind auditions? Put a curtain up and you don't see who's auditioning. And, and things have changed. It's a very simple fix of now you have a much different view of symphonies now because of that. Just a simple fix of, um, you know, it's not even a test. So the test would be blind, literally blind test for mm-hmm. the job, and it, and it worked really well. Yeah, just, uh, you know, seeing that there might be opportunities of implicit bias and, yeah, finding a way to – yeah. A, a very simple fix, right? And so you say mm-hmm. you, you're like you. You say cynical. Some people are cynical and maybe make a stand, and people listen. And then you find a, a, a possible solution. In this case, have them behind a curtain. You don't see who's playing, and then you you go from there. Yeah. That 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 math that math was easy. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a yeah. Uh, I mean yeah. I mean th- things are sometimes a little bit more complicated in, in, in other things, but that was just a, an example of where cynicism was correct and found a solution. Right. If only it was e- <laughs> that easy in other aspects too. Well, we, we, yes. It's it's it, this is um, a little bit more difficult in this environment, but. In general, the the progress is going the right way, and a lot of companies are putting in these um, these measures, the, these checklists, even for say a fire department, where um, the argument was you had to be all male because you had to be able to lift up heavy equipment. We've gotten around that through through different testing of different positions in fire departments, where it, it actually can be both genders can can do stuff and be more efficient. And and it works, and and when things work, you just want you for fire department. You want it to work, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's also a good sign that people are are hiring you know consultants like like your company to find where the problem is if they've noticed you know some inequalities or something. Yeah, it, it is good, and, and also it's uh, can be fear based in the sense that maybe a company's afraid of people bringing stuff against them and they want to see stuff make fixes ahead of time. So they're covering themselves, which is also progress. You know, if fear gets it done and makes changes, it's, it's still part of the system. Yeah. I guess I want to turn, turn back around <laughs> um, to what kind of um, short stories do you uh, write? You said that they often, um, take place they use more physics and and like space so are they would they you describe them as more hard sci-fi futuristic uh yes but i also do a little bit of um, mind games type of um short stories so um okay like so one one of I have a couple of things I'm working on and coming out. One is um, a short story, which I'm, tr- I'm changing the reality of the characters where it'll turn out a few of them are fictional or, or within the story, they'll realize they're fictional. In other words, wrong. so it, it, it's that. And then I have another one I'm working on. It's more of just a straight space adventure with a kind of a AI issue. That, that That's that. But I also have a book coming out in November. So that's a mystery. So, so I, yeah. 
well, it, it's about a it's about a former Marine who teams up with a sort of a quirky private investigator who thinks he's Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's coming out in November. So I'm hoping that that'll be a series. So it, it's more modern day science will be in it more than science fiction on, on that one. And I'm sort of working on an outlining a follow up to blockbuster science, which which, which I'm, I'm hoping I'm, more, I'm kind of still coming up with ideas for length of it, but it would be more of underreported history of science. So when I, when I was writing Blockbuster, I would come across a lot of these stories that were underreported that I had to research and that I didn't know about and I, and I learned. Uh, like, like, for example, the, how women were the original computers. They were... Um, so when I talk about computers, I believe I mentioned that, that a kilo girl, I remember what I wrote in the book, a kilo girl was a unit of measurement, which would be equal to the calculating ability of a thousand women. And that's how it was in the 1800s. The women were the calculators. And and that's how the, the book and movie Hidden Figures came from, because it was the women were doing the calculations. But that was actually going on in the 1800s. Because, men, men, I mean, the men, professors, whatever, it was too... I, I, I guess I really don't want to insult the men of the time either, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm shooting from the hip on this one, but it was a little bit beneath them to do some of these calculations, the, the, the day-to-day math, where they would do the great, they would do the theory, and the women would do the hard calculations. And that was going on through the 1800s, and which I think I tell the story of Henrietta Leavitt in the book. She was the one who worked with um, Hubble, in determining distances between stellar objects. She's the one who actually discovered Cepheid stars and how they would, well, she didn't discover the star, but she discovered how they pulsated at regular intervals, and you could use that pulsation to determine distances. So you know how far stars were from each other. And that was her calculations. She would get all the data, and she she would do the calculations. So stories like hers and other ones, and then, also in the book, I talk about ancient Greece having robots, you know, stories like that, which, which I think I'd like to delve deeper into in another book. Yeah, that's what I've um, discovered when I do research for the podcast is just that, you know, when you learn in school about like science, they just tell you what the result is. They don't tell you about the people that came up with the results and how they had, you know, fascinating stories and histories um, before that. And that, you know, the the science wasn't done in a vacuum. Uh, they they talked to each other. They built off each other's science, you know, projects. And yeah, so um, that's one thing I've learned um, doing this podcast was just that there's an entire world of stuff you don't hear about. Um, you just kind of hear these science facts and, and that's kind of the, the end of it. So that's cool. I, I hope that um, works out. I'd like to read it. Yeah. I'm sort of working on that between projects. So yeah, it might be, a, it might take a while to finish. So yeah, while I was researching it, I think in, I, I know in Blockbuster, Science, I talk about how I believe the first science fiction was Frankenstein. I, I sort of start with that. But did you know you could connect that to computer science and um, actual programming? Yeah, I, f- I found the link. I mean, it's not that I was the only person to ever discover it. But 
<laughs> my independent one is um, in the book I tell about how they all got together and they had a challenge and they write a story and um, Mary Walls and Kraft Godwin um, came up with Frankenstein and she was I don't know if did you remember the story of that how that whole thing comes about Frankenstein um just that uh she was at a party and that yeah they were challenged to come up with the story um but yeah that's yeah no that that, that was it so it, it was a challenge and it was um her Mary Wolzecraft Godwin did I get a name right correct um she had a boyfriend Percy Shelley Percy Basie Shelley then Lord Byron was there and William Polidori and Claire Claremont they were all there now it's like the the whole get together was a big soap opera because Claire Claremont I think snuck there to be with Lord Byron is an uh, indiscreet thing, and William Paul Derry was was uh, Byron's doctor who actually in that challenge came up with the story vampire, which sort of leads to the whole vampire genre, which which I thought was interesting, and and Mary Godwin was there and I think like about a month, this is the um, early 1800s where people in London could go watch these experiments where you'd go um, hear a lecture and one was on electricity and they would shock uh, frogs and frogs would jump around showing that there's a connection between electricity and movement and all that. And I believe she attended one of those. So she had that in the back of her mind. So, so when she was there for that challenge and they're all in a room, that that's how she, one of the reasons she came up with Frankenstein so that's how Frankenstein. And then eventually, a year a year after writing it, she marries Percy Shelley and becomes Mary Shelley, who we probably know her better as, and she does that. But Lord Byron had one legitimate daughter because he had many children, but they weren't from his wife. Um, and that was um, Loveless, Ada Loveless who um, actually does the first or, or was one of the first computer programmers in 1840s using punch cards. So in, in a strange way, that's how I connect Frankenstein to that. It's, it's, it's very circular, but yeah, it, it's all sort of connected. And she's brilliant. I mean, yeah. gosh, her math is great. Yeah, I'm glad her name has been popping up a lot. Um, so finally she's getting the recognition she deserves. Yeah, no, she was the, uh, I can't, I, I, I can't, I don't have any references to say she's the first programmer, but she's definitely one of the first. And she did it without an actual, because a Babbage computer wasn't quite done at the time. So she um, actually did it all in punch cards. And it all was logical and it worked. What is the name of your, your book that's coming out in November so we could have a plug? Well, as of right now, it's called Poison Pawn. So I hope it stays that name, Poisoned Pawn, like in chess. Right on. Mystery novel. Yeah, with with a little bit of action. And, and you know, I put, I, put, I put a – it's a kitchen sink. I threw everything into it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and where can people find you online? Um, well, I'm on Instagram as David Siegel Bernstein. I'm on – Twitter is David David Bernstein. My blog, which is I have to update, is David Siegel Bernstein at blogspot.com. Cool. And uh, and David Siegel Bernstein is also on Facebook. Awesome. 
So I, I, I try to keep up with all that. Ugh, I know that it's. But my blog is so out of date. It's a it's a full time job. Yeah. <laughs> let's be let's be real. I totally understand. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Um, I really appreciate it. And um, man, I learned a lot. <laughs> Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for saying that. (laughs) Thanks again to David for coming on the show. His social media links will be in the show notes. Before I sign off, I want to tell you all that I will be on another panel at Clexicon in Las Vegas in April. I'll be joining Leonelli from Les Hangout and Nicole and Lauren from Coming Out with Lauren and Nicole for the Podcasting 101 panel. I'll be giving out my tips if you want to start your own solo podcast, and I hope to see some of you there. As always, check out the blog, factandsciencefiction.com, support the show on patreon.com slash factandsci-fi, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, and I'll give you a shout out on the show. For instance, thanks to Noelle and Justin for your support on Patreon. I really appreciate it. And lastly, thanks for listening.